hello there. Once again, my name is still Jeff Watson. That has not changed. And you are listening to the Inspired Minds podcast. That has also not changed for now, at least. We'll see where this goes. How are you, every single listener on the show? I am boiling. My God, I am sweating right now. Not that you really needed to know that, but I am telling you, I guess, because I want you to show the dedication that I have to this goddamn show. Woof. Man, the earth is on fire. It's getting scary. Wow. But at least I'll be doing this show until the whole thing goes up in flames. I I ain't going to stop this. I'm having way too much fun. So in a way of introducing the guest that I spoke to, I thought I would tell a little story about a young Jeff. Jeff was in San Jose, California for his formative years. And for those of you who don't know where San Jose is or what it is exactly, it is a city. You may know that as well. It is the subject of the Dionne Warwick, Burt Bacharach classic, Do You Know the Way to San Jose? And that's pretty much the only thing we're fucking known for, except the Silicon Valley, which is where they actually found silicon, and that made into computer chips, and then the technological revolution became uh, a thing, and then it kind of ruined everything, <laughs> social media. However, man, I'm getting dark already. However, as a young child between the ages of 10 and 18, I was in this town. San Jose is basically a boring suburb. It, it's kind of like San Francisco, which is just below it, with no water and no culture. That's, that's, that's pretty much San Jose. That's how it's been for years. Um, there's really only been uh, three bands that have ever come out of this uh, little weird town, and that is Count Five in the Reaction, a 60s psychedelic garage band who were actually fantastic. Um, then on the not-so-fantastic thing, and this is just my opinion, Smash Mouth, eh. Uh, Almond Brothers, I think, no, Doobie Brothers, the doobs. But that's kind of it. Most towns have 10, 20, 100, 1,000 bands coming out of them. There's nothing here. But there was a movie theater, and there was a win. There's a thing called the Winchester Mystery House. Both of those things were incredibly formative for me. So, and they were right next to each other. So, the deal on the Winchester Mystery House is there, it was uh, an old Victorian, still standing, and it was built by workers at, at the behest of Sarah Winchester, who was the daughter or granddaughter of the man who invented and made the Winchester rifle. She felt that she was being haunted by the ghosts, the Indian ghosts, rather, that were being slaughtered by the Winchester rifles, and decided to keep building this house, just <laughs> room after room after room, because she feared that she would die, that the ghosts told her that she would die if she did not if she did not stop building. So it's massive, this thing. There's like stairwells to nowhere and a beautiful place, but stained glass windows on the top. And it's just completely bizarre. And across from it was the Century 21, 22, and 23 theaters. And they were these beautiful dome theaters. We don't have those anymore. And it was like a cathedral going into this, into these places. And they're just massive domes. Like the Cinerama Dome has it back in L.A. It's a dying art form. And, and unfortunately, the Century 21 theaters are gone as well now. But it was so powerful because I saw every single movie I could possibly see. 
And it, it, it was this community feeling to it because the opening song, <laughs> the theme song to this theater was so weird, which was really bad corporate kind of music. Uh, they kind of like slip in and it was bum, 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 So there was this tradition, this really weird and amazing tradition that everybody would clap along in the theaters every single time. So what they would do is they would go, uh, it would go bum, 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 and then and it was this feeling of community. It just this this tribe that I was a part of every single time. And I saw Raising Arizona there, and I saw Empire Strikes Back there, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw every date I took to the movies was there. So that is my way of introducing the next guest, and that is Andrew Trapani, who was a, a, a Trapani. I got it wrong the first time when I did this interview, too. At any rate, it's his fault for having a hard name to pronounce. It was a really interesting interview because it turns out, first of all, this guy, he's a hes a producer, a film producer, and he produced Haunting in Connecticut, and he's got one working up called Queen Mary, which is this horror movie about Queen Mary, but he also did Winchester about uh, six, seven years ago, maybe, with Helen Mirren. And it's a great movie, but I saw it and I was like, oh my God, this guy knows Winchester uh, very well. So I was going to talk to him about it. And it turns out he's from San Jose. We were around the same time, didn't know each other, <laughs> not a lot to do. And that was the point. You would only go to Winchester Mystery House, really, and or the movies. And it was just a block away. So I had an incredibly wonderful time talking to this guy. Not only did we talk about the old days, but we talked about a horror. We talked about the Bee Gees. He's uh, got some stuff on there. And, uh, and we talked about just everything. G a Gene Wilder documentary that this guy is doing. Um, just a great, great, great human being. And uh, as always... I hope that you enjoyed this as much as I did making it, because I got to go down like Amnesia Lane with this guy. <laughs> it was fantastic. So I hope you enjoy it. Stay cool. Let's try not to burn the planet down uh, as much as we possibly can, and I will see you uh, soon, talk to you, unless I'm in a pool of my own sweat. Bye. Hello, Inspired Minds audience. Please welcome the amazing and talented, I can already tell, Andrew Trapani. Wait, did I get that right again? Trapani. You told me like nine <laughs> times. I'm going to still keep rolling. Ensuring still keep you were going to butcher it, by the way. Ensuring <laughs> you were going to butcher it. <laughs> I suck at this job clearly already. Um, well, again, thank you so much for doing this. And there's so much stuff I want to cover. But I do want to ask the first question that I always ask every creative on the show. And that is very simply, what was the first thing that you can remember that inspired you when you were a kid? Was it a song, a book, a poem, a Slayer song? Go. Definitely music-driven. Baby of four boys, Italian family, growing up like you, San Jose, South Bay Area, Saratoga, California. So parental reins were fairly loosened by the time the fourth boy came along. So, you know, I was listening to Beatles, Zeppelin, Stones, and there were just certain songs that just like spoke to me very early on that I was purchasing on vinyl. It kind of sounds funny to say it right now, but one of them very early on, I was probably six or seven years old before it became like the most overused needle drop in cinema was, you know, Manfred Mann's Blinded by the Light. Oh, wow. That song and Gary Wright's Dream Reaver. I, I literally remember going and purchasing these songs and playing them over and over again. Back when you could stack 
six or seven 45s on top of the turntable and have them drop one after the other. That was what a cue was, right, for music in, in the mid-70s. That's true. <laughs> so, so that was certainly the, um, the beginning of being inspired was, was, was music. And then you could also point to any number of Saturday afternoon cartoons and, and movies that I probably shouldn't have seen pretty early on. But I would say music for sure. What's a movie that you shouldn't have seen? Well, interestingly enough, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about this Gene Wilder documentary that I'm producing. It, it just so happened, the true story is my father came home one day with a three-quarter inch VCR. This was before I knew what a VCR was. This was before you could rent movies. And it was just gigantic top-loading behemoth. And there were like five what I thought were blank cassettes. They weren't labeled. And when I would pop these in, one after the other, silent movie, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles. Wow. So literally, I'm not getting any of the jokes, but I, I, I would, I could then, and still now, recite to you, chapter and verse, most of Blazing Saddles and um, Young Frankenstein. No, and I was I, I, obviously Star Wars. I mean, I remember where I was when I first heard the word Star Wars uttered to me. It means a lot different in the, in the world now, uh, but back then, when I first heard it, it, it changed my life, and I remember seeing it for the first time and. Um, the anticipation of waiting the years to see the subsequent films with absolutely no access to data or uh, or anything about what was coming next, unlike now. Let's go into Gene Wilder, which, quite frankly, could be the entire podcast for like nine hours with me. I'm a massive, massive Gene Wilder fan. And I could quote – in fact, actually, I, the last episode that just went up with a guy named Richard Potter who was like – he was Miramax guy. And we ended up quoting – you know, young Frankenstein back, back and forth, like werewolf, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, um, or my favorite yeah, thing. Casa. Yeah, Casa, why are you talking that way? I don't know. I thought you wanted to suit yourself. I'm easy. Um, exactly. My favorite line in that movie actually is just Marty Feldman, such a simple little, not really simple, but this one thing that he did, and you know, this is when he goes, hi, ain't got nobody. I go. So you ever seen the outtakes? I'm sure you've seen, well, obviously you've seen the outtakes. Oh yes. Oh yes. Yeah. It's, I've been privileged to see some stuff um, during this journey of, of telling this story. Um, yeah, this, this was occasionally the, the movie gods smile down upon you. Not very often, but this, this project has its origins truly in friendship and, and good fortune. As I mentioned, I've been a fan of jeans my whole life. And um, I, I honestly, I credit those movies with really, my first real love for, for like movies, you know, other than star Wars and, you know, later on Raiders of the Lost Ark, those movies yeah. I truly fell in love with. So I had started getting a little bit more into the documentary space and it turned out uh, a gentleman by the name of Jordan Walker Perlman, uh, who was raised as Gene's son. He's Gene's nephew. Gene had no biological children. Jordan and I became friendly. And the short version is, you know, we met at a couple of pitch fests. We were on a panel or two together. And, um, he likes to tell the story. He tells it much better than I do. But I reached out to him and I said, you know, this was a couple of years after Gene had passed. You know, would you consider doing something about Gene? And unsurprisingly, he had been offered inordinate sums of money by people a lot more important than me. And he turned them all down more because he felt like it wasn't the right time and it was still very raw for him. But I convinced him to explore it. And we ended up partnering with my friends at, at White Horse Pictures, um, which has become sort of like the preeminent certain musical documentary company in the world. They've done the PGs, which was directed by Frank Marshall. They've done two films with Ron Howard. They did the Pavarotti doc. They uh, just a chapter and verse, anything that you want to see in sort of like that vein, they've done incredible work. 
So we partnered with them and Jordan, his, his no turned into a very enthusiastic yes. And it's just the whole process. The film's directed by Chris Smith, who's done everything from the Firefest doc to the wonderful Andy Kaufman documentary with Jim Carrey. Wow. Um, he did the Hunter Wave. He's just a prolific Emmy-nominated documentarian. So it's been, it's been, it's the antithesis of every other movie where eventually everybody sues everybody and it goes on so long that people are unhappy and miserable and people get more credit than they should and the people who deserve it don't. This, we feel this has been blessed by Gene and I'll, I'll round off that sort of the dismount is what Jordan says, speaking on behalf of the estate, is he feels it's, it's Gene's last great performance. How wonderful. And I always got the feeling, and I think I read this a lot, that, well, first of all, he seemed like the most incredibly warm human being, but it was the love story between he and Gilda that always warmed my heart. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, there was there was such passion, there was such connection. It was kind of like um, like what Mel Brooks and Anne Bancroft. Mm-hmm. Very and, much, and both. Yeah, obviously, <clears throat> connective tissue, right on on both of those fronts. This this film really, I mean, there's a wonderful film that came out, I believe, in 2019 called Love Gilda. Uh, which is really you know about Gilda and touches on her relationship with Gene a lot. What we're doing in this film is it's very much about the enigmatic Gene as an artist and him mm-hmm. speaking about his craft. And we've sourced incredible amounts of archival from around the world. And it's just a really delicate portrait of, I don't want to say a misunderstood artist, but someone that was fairly enigmatic, right? It was really tough to know Gene and, and who you saw on screen was, a part of him, but certainly not the whole of him. I truly can't wait. There's so much, uh, you, you know, I mean, when I was a kid, I watched Stir Crazy. Actually, speaking of films that you shouldn't have seen, I somehow convinced my dad, who's like really upstanding Christian guy, somehow I convinced him at the age of like 11 to go see Stir Crazy. We might have been in the same screening because I, I, you know, I had the same, uh, my dad and I had a thing where it was one of our father-son things that if I pointed out an R-rated comedy, and I, he, he'd say, yeah, that's one for us. So we saw Star Crazy, of course, along with 48 Hours and any number of inappropriate, you know, buddy cop kind of movies that we would see. That's <laughs> so funny. You said 48 Hours. I was just going through uh, through YouTube and watching some clips of that show. I hadn't seen that in decades. And God, Eddie Murphy was such a star. <laughs> Always a star. Oh, yeah. yeah. Really, in my estimation, the, the beginning of the buddy cop genre, it's still – as, politi- as politically incorrect as it is, it's it's still, in my estimation, one of the best in terms of the chemistry and, and launching that type of movie, that type no, of fun. You're absolutely right. And here's a segue, because this year we're talking about a doc here, um, I'm not too sure what your involvement is with this, but I really want to talk about the Bee Gees thing because I'm a massive Bee Gees fan. So my involvement is, is less than zero. I think I ended up in the special thanks um, purely because the filmmakers, Frank Marshall and then the producers at Whitehorse Pictures, Nigel Sinclair, Nicholas Farrell, Jeannie Alfantfesta and Cassidy Hartman, they, for whatever reason, they, they occasionally subject me to, um, well, they solicit my opinion on occasion. So I, or I, in this case, I think I just threw elbows and said, I, I'm, I'm going to see this film early and you're going to hear my, my notes because I had such reverence for this story and for the BGs being of that, you know, again, a baby of four boys who happens to be Andy, you know, right. There was an Andy and the baby yeah. of four in the BGs, the youngest who ever made the group. Yeah. Um, so I, again, I was lucky to sort of be in a few screenings and, and give some comments and um, it's a terrific film. I mean, yeah. I, it's funny. I, I made the comment to someone the other day. I, go, I saw the film probably half a dozen times 
while they were making it. And I, I still will throw it on now. Um, I think it was nominated. There's six Emmy categories. It was nominated for, for six. Wow. And, you know, actually, yeah. it's kind of quick throwback to, uh, to Gene Wilder. You, you know, he, I think this is correct, that he put Young Frankenstein and Blazing Saddles out in the same year, correct? He, he absolutely did. You know, he and Mel, they just had an incredible run. And um, the world was never the same. No. And then back to Bee Gees, there's a tie. And that is, I remember one time looking at, I think it was like 1978 or 79 at the top 10 hits that year. And like seven of them were written by, by uh, the Bee Gees. Yeah, there's that incredible moment, which I, if you've seen the film where, you know, they're, they're solicited to put these you know, songs together for what would become Saturday Night Fever. And, you know, there really wasn't a term disco yet. Or no. it, was, it wasn't quite out there in the nomenclature. And they just, they wanted, they were just such amazing songwriters. There's a demo tape that exists that has like five of those songs just in like demo state that all really? became number one hits. Um, and it wasn't just that though also too, because don't forget, he was writing at that time, especially when I saw it at least, it was Barbara Streisand because he had done um, Guilt, was it Guilty? You know, that record. Yeah, game. it might have been a couple of years later because they really got they got sort of, you know, when disco imploded, you know, they were sort of it's in the film, right? They were sort of the poster children. So they they almost really couldn't perform. They went from being the biggest band in the world to just basically being abject pariahs. Like no one wanted anything to do with the beaches. And they just repurposed themselves and became songwriters until enough time had passed, right? And then they sure. sort of became appreciated for the generational artists and musicians that they are. And, and they, I think they toured quite a bit um, towards the end. I could listen to run to me that song for days on end. I know. And they had that whole huge early success pre-disco that most people don't know about. They do. Yeah. You know, they they charted yeah. with, with a number of songs. Yeah. So pretty incredible story. And I, I think what's, what's worth noting there, it's, you know, as, as I move forward more into doing documentaries, um, some of which I can speak about and some of which we'll have to wait until next time. One of the things we do, and our friends at Whitehorse have the same philosophy, which is we we work directly with the artist if they're if they're still with us. If they've passed on, we get the blessing of their estate, as we did with Gene. So I know that that Whitehorse probably spent a good couple years getting Barry, who was the last surviving member, um, to to agree to do the film. You know, getting getting that amount of trust. You're not giving them you know oversight of the cut. You're not compromising the integrity of the story, but you're you're earning, you know, these generational artist trusts, you know, yeah. which is a very unique and specific skill set and privilege. And for Whitehorse, it's based on certainly their track record. But that's that's sort of the ethos of, of these documentaries that I'm working on now and moving forward. Well, I'm a big doc nerd, so maybe we could do this some other time or just continue. But I got to get into the meat of this thing. So you're clearly you're a horror guy. You've got at least a part of that in you because of uh, the haunting in Connecticut. And I saw that you have the Queen Mary coming up, at least on IMDb. Yeah. Yes, yes. Queen Mary's in post-production. Oh, I'm a, you know, I've been there a bunch of times when I lived down in L.A. And it's a, you know, it, it's a great setting. I love the poster, by the way. I'm a poster guy. So that was really good. I have to say, uh, if, you want, if you want to go down the, the rabbit hole briefly on, on Queen Mary, having, having touched a number of these stories, and I certainly cut my teeth on horror. I watched everything when I was growing up. And um, I don't watch as much lately since, I don't know, since becoming a, a father, uh, it's, it's a little bit harder for me to watch horror, I suppose. I watch what, what I need to in the films that sort of, you know, break out or if there's new voices that, you know, I need to really be aware of. 
um, I try and stay abreast of that. But um, I'd seen everything for for decades. So I will say that having you know, we were an old partner of mine. We were loosely involved in the Amityville remake. You know, obviously, Honey in Connecticut was originally a, a, a Warren case, even though they weren't depicted in the film. Queen Mary is undoubtedly the most haunted feeling place I've, I've ever been in my life. Yeah. I, I spent a night on the boat doing a recce, myself, the writer, the other producer, and I, I never want to spend another night on that boat. I don't, I don't claim to be particularly clairvoyant. I try and sort of like, you know, kind of steal myself. I believe there are other forces out there. And that place, you know, a lot happened on that boat. A lot happened. Excuse me, ship. You cannot call it a boat. It's a not a boat. <laughs> not a dinghy. No. <laughs> I got to ask this before I get to some other things. I saw that American Werewolf in London is in the works. Yeah, that's talk about one we could have a whole separate podcast. I have been working on the remake of American Werewolf in London in some form. And kids, if you're listening, make sure you understand this calendar date when you think you want to go into the movie business. I started working on this in 2005. Wow. I think it's 2022. Yeah. <laughs> so I might have been closer to getting the movie made two years ago than I am today. Uh, the, the long and the short of it is I worked to set up the remake with with the rights holders. It's, a, it's as we say, a split rights situation. One of them is, is John Landis, the filmmaker who controls half of it. And uh, I've, as we say, I've set it up. I've sold it a couple times. It's currently Universal Studios. Um, we developed a script there with much fanfare, which for any number of reasons that you can Google and, and probably find out did not move forward with fairly big names involved. And so now it's a little bit, of, again, in stasis as we try and navigate the future uh, of what we're going to do with Werewolf. But um, I'm going to keep trying. I love that you took that on. I just, I, gosh, I have so much reverence for the original. You know, I have sure. so much reverence for for what John accomplished. And sure. Doing things totally that hadn't really done been done in American cinema. Certainly overseas they had, but not so much in America. Uh, and let's just be honest, Griffin Dunn, come on, genius. Oh, yeah, just amazing. Both those guys, the chemistry. Not, yeah. To, and to be able to really get you to laugh legitimately that hard and then also just be terrified, you know, a scene or two later. Sure. You know, at that time, people forget, you know, John and Landis and Spielberg were, I mean, they were almost neck and neck as, as, as American filmmakers because yeah. Stephen had his major foul tip in 1941 trying to do yeah. his, his best, Landis, right, his best Landis. Sure. Um, so. Yeah, everyone forgets about that with Tom Belushi. Yeah, that's, I think it's forgettable for a reason. I think so, too. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't get mentioned a lot of times when you're talking about all the other Spielberg movies, I can tell you that. I know. On par, I think most of us would take his batting average. It ain't bad. <laughs> you, got, you, got, you got one whiff out of what, a thousand movies? You're good. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> um, one thing I will say, actually, too, is I cannot believe you pulled this off. I saw that you guys have Hawkline Monster, the Prodigan book. Oh, boy, that's a that's a yarn. That took longer than American Werewolf. I would imagine it did because I saw that like Ashby tried to do it and Tim Burton tried to do it and Nicholson and like Clint Eastwood. and Yeah, this has been like, again, and uh, you want to throw out another calendar date? I think I read the book in 2002. Wow. And the gentleman who's no longer with us who gave me the book told me the whole mythology, which I loved as much of the book. I, I really did love it as much as, as I loved the book, the, the, the text itself by Brodigan. And it just is one of these great Hollywood stories, these unfinished stories. It, Ashby had 
bought the rights outright in the early 70s from Richard Brodigan, who wrote the novel. He developed it at UA. Like, like you mentioned, at one point he had Clint Eastwood and Jack Nicholson attached in like 1977. And, uh, but they could never get the script right. Brodigan, some years later, uh, committed suicide tragically. Then, then Ashby died. And then it kind of fell into, again, one of these, my specialties, sort of this kind of split rights uh, stasis thing where they're, they're hard. So, you know, the hard ones are, you know, they're hard to figure out how to piece together. But even before my involvement, you know, Burton had tried to develop it, as you mentioned. Uh, Jeff Bridges has been after it for two or three decades, uh, including sort of parallel to my pursuit. And the long and the short of it is I developed a relationship with Brodigan's daughter, Ianthe, and her husband, Paul. And they've become great friends and collaborators of the last 10, 15 years. Very similarly, I tried to you know, broker a relationship with the Ashby estate and their attorney. And then we were able to kind of put it all together. Uh, I remember it was right around my daughter's first birthday because I was stepping outside to, it was a three week bidding war and multiple studies and different filmmakers involved and wasn't sure if it was going to come through, but it was, it was pretty epic. And then shortly thereafter, we were able to make a deal with Yorgos Lanthimos to direct and Tony McNamara to adapt, which is all happening right now. So it's, it's the writing and directing team behind the favorite. Um, so we, we just, if we could have picked, we couldn't have picked better. So we're very, very excited to see how that's all going to come out. That's amazing. Could you perhaps tell a very uninitiated, uh, burgeoning therapist guy who is a big movie fan who doesn't know really much about the music or the uh, film industry? Tell me, because it sounds to me, and I could be completely fucking off on this, but it sounds to me like a producer has, is a lot of it is just hurting cats. Absolutely. Right. And each project has, you know, it's just a series of small businesses all being run by cats. And that's all it really is. You know, and, and your role, your role on every project is different. You know, I mean, there's there's films like Haunting in Connecticut where like from beginning to end, it was it was I was certainly wasn't the only one, but I was I was sort of the instigator and acquired the rights and um, developed the screenplay, found the writers, found the financing, you know, however many 20 iterative drafts when it didn't think we were going to get it made and being on location. And then you have other ones that you kind of just, you know, you help set up and that's your role and you kind of just move it on its way and other people will be more meaningfully involved in its completion. But yeah, there's just, there's a lot of sort of three-dimensional thinking to all of it. And each one is, is like its own small business with a collection of cats running in all different directions. Right. Yeah, that's kind of, I mean, I was a product manager over at Warner Brothers for a long time. So, I mean, I know it's not the same, but essentially it kind of, there was certainly, you know, connective tissue there because all I was doing was just running around to different departments going, are you going to promote this? Are you going to promote this? And I tell the manager and the artist and go back and forth with that. So it was a little bit of that herding cat mentality. Yeah, you don't, as the producer, you just, you've got to make sure that you know, there is inertia. And if there's a bottleneck, it shouldn't be you. Um, and if people need to sort of, see what needs to happen next. You know, it's your job to kind of, you know, spur everyone on as best you can. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's go here off top of my head. Yeah. What are you, okay. I always hear that things are in turnaround. The script's in turnaround. The movie's in turnaround. What the fuck does that mean? So it's studio parlance. So this only applies to if you've sold a film to a studio or a network. So for example, um, we've got this um, relationship with the Los Angeles Lakers. We have a docu-series that's coming out uh, for Hulu 
which will be out in August or September. It's if you've seen The Last Dance about the Chicago Bulls, uh-huh. you know, that came out at the beginning of the pandemic, it's very much that kind of analog. It's it, the whole story of the Lakers from, you know, Dr. Buss and Magic all the way up through Kobe and Shaq. Wow. So, but I'll get to answer your question, but first there's a plug, right? So <laughs> through this relationship with Jeannie Buss and the Lakers, this was before she was the general manager. She said, I want to do a scripted show about a family that owns a basketball team. So she basically wanted to do succession kind of about her family, change the names, but it's basketball. So we went and sold the project to Showtime. Ron Shelton was the writer, did Bull Durham, Bull Durham. Tim Cup, you know, sports films. Yep. And Phil was involved with that, which I've never walked into a room more stacked than with Cheney Buss, you know, uh, <laughs> Phil Jackson, and Ron Shaw. I've never seen more executives cram into the room wow. you know, on the other side because everybody wanted to meet Phil. Yeah. So we sell this project. Ron is paid to write the script. Ron gets it close, but not quite. We bring in another writer to rewrite it. Now, are we going to make this pilot or can we get a series order? Or is it in this is it in this case they decided for various reasons not to move forward. So what happens at that time is the project is put in turnaround, which means the in this case network a studio can do the same thing indicates we're not moving forward with this. It's sort of in reversion to you, the producers, myself, and the other people who worked on getting it there, and we have a year to basically go run around and go try and set it up somewhere else. And if we're successful in doing so, then. Showtime will get their development money back and so on. So that that's that's turnaround. If you really want to go deeper, there's also a reversion window, which happens after that. But that's that's the basic concept. Studio's mm-hmm. done with it. They're not making it. The producers have the opportunity to go try and set it up elsewhere. Reversion window. Go there. So it's basically, it's no longer in turnaround. It's now in a guild reversion, which means it's basically reversion to the writer, the person who wrote it. It can get complicated if there's if it's based on intellectual property underneath it, like if it's an adaptation of a book or someone's life rights. But essentially, it just means the, it, the writer then can basically purchase the script back, um, which they very seldom do. Interesting. You know, mm-hmm. On a kind of a similar note, um, I don't know if you know this, actually, from being uh, in our mutual town, which I want to get into, obviously, in a second. But I just found out over the weekend that Charlie, the old SNA studios, the old, you know, the Charlie Chaplin and the Fatty Arbuckle films and Silence, they're all in Niles, which is like an hour out of San Jose. I had no idea. So I had no idea either. I went down there. There's a Charlie Chaplin Museum. You can see everything. It's fantastic. What's interesting is the SNA Studios were production studios. In fact, the big the sign was SNA Production Studios. Production. So it's a giant hall, you know, like how they used to do it back then. They film. Then down in the basement, they would they would develop a film. And these huge rooms with these massive reels, and they would just dip them in four different, uh, you know, developing, and then it was, you know, this thing and this thing, and they print and they kick it out. Dramatically different than turn around and bring the whole thing. It was incredible. <laughs> yeah, they actually shot on film and developed film back then. Pre-digital. Like George Melier and all those guys, they just had a little room and shot and then developed and, you know, kicked it out. Very cool. Yeah, just I wasn't aware of that amazing stuff and it's like the beatles or any of those bands back then you know they would i mean i i actually talked to uh, phil everly from the everly brothers before he died and he told me these stories of you know they'd go in cut a record and by the next day it was in the hands of the dj they play it yeah yeah you know there's no marketing no how many, great, how many of those great bands were writing songs you know some of the, the most seminal albums ever you know were written on the road and recorded in a matter of weeks or less 
I, I always love telling the story that I harmonized with Phil Everly at an Olive Garden when someone we all sang happy birthday to somebody and I was standing next to him and realized this is my shot. So I did. That's fantastic. <laughs> no one knew. But it was very exciting. So here's something else I want to, I do want to talk about Sobe Entertainment. And what is that? Obviously, obviously it's involved with movies somewhere, but tell me about that. So Sobe Road is actually a quaint little road in Northern California in Saratoga, sort of the childhood home of my youth where we lived from, I don't know, 77 to, you know, the late eighties when I finished high school. And, um, it really was sort of where my, my imagination was born and some of the things I cited earlier in our talk were sort of happened or experienced. So um, when I got more meaningfully into the documentary space, a friend of mine of many, many years who also grew up across the way on Sobe Road, very successful in a parallel field, we decided we were going to start this shingle uh, primarily to focus on premium documentaries. So um, a couple of the ones that I can mention, one of which you've talked about already, which is Gene Wilder. That'll be out um, sometime later this year. We're, we're just finishing the film now. Um, and then we're in production on the definitive Billy Preston documentary, which is being directed by Paris Barkley, uh, which is going to be an incredible, incredible piece of storytelling. <clears throat> one of the greatest untold stories in rock and roll, in my mm-hmm. opinion. And if you and if you caught any of Peter Jackson's wow. um, yeah. seminal documentary on the Beatles on Apple, you, Billy was front and center in that. So, yeah, no, I, uh, but that's what Sobe's all about. Mm-hmm. I actually, I do have my own little Billy Preston story. It's a tiny one, but um, I was in a band and we were recording and I was playing piano in this band and there was this giant white uh, grand piano and, and they're like, here you go. And like, by the way, this is Billy Preston's piano. Um, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. You know, I, of course I played, let it be granted. He didn't play on that originally, but nevertheless, I played the Beatles song just you know, for the hell of it, but it was like touching God. <laughs> For, for me, you know? Well, he's the only artist to be credited on a Beatles album right. other than the Fab Four themselves. And if you saw the film, which is a musician, if you haven't seen it, you, you, you got to set aside however many hours it is, 12, to watch it. His impact on the band during Let It Be is just, it's just undeniable. They all sort of like, they were clearly in a state of having quite enough of each other and yeah. fairly uninspired musically. And then in comes Billy Preston and they all sort of got a kick in the ass and, and raise their game. Yeah. And you know, there's that, the famous rooftop sequence. And I, I saw that in the theaters and it was so much fun watching Billy Preston on the side, which I never truly realized because it was kind of, it wasn't on a big screen and it was hard to see. And he just demolished. He was so good on that thing. And, <laughs> and the Beatles were in fine form at that. I mean, it was really a McCartney show at that point. Cause he's like, like peacocking around and amazing. So let's get into the meat of this whole thing. Winchester. So, ladies and gentlemen of the uh, of the dazzled throng, Andrew and I lived in San Jose, California. It's it's a town. It is what it is. But there was this thing called the Winchester Mystery House. It is still up today, and it was built by a woman named Sarah Winchester, who was uh, haunted by the ghosts of the Indians who had died. Correct me if I'm wrong here, but they were uh, haunted by the ghosts of the Indians who had died by the Winchester rifle. So. She was compelled and apparently told by the ghost to just keep building, never stop building. And this made this Victorian house that was just massive that's still there. And I know that you were there as an early child hanging out sometimes. So get me to where you made the movie with Helen Mirren. Well, I will tell you that I was definitely there. And, uh, you know, for the eight to 10 of you who are still listening to the sound of my voice as I prattle on the, the adjacent parking lot 
there were three gigantic dome theaters, classic architecture, wonderful cinema where Jeff and I probably saw all of the definitive films of our childhood. And you could just kind of bounce back and forth between that and the gift shop if you didn't want to pay for the tour of the Winchester Mystery House. So, you know, I, I never really would have dreamed that I'd have an opportunity to put that movie together, let alone produce it. But it always stuck with me, certainly, you know, and there was something about seeing those movies in the adjacent parking lot, which at one point that was all Winchester land. I mean, I don't know. They owned half the county. They were so yeah. wealthy at one point. And uh, I always thought it was interesting just thematically how as, as time went on, you know, the house got bigger and the land around it sort of contracted. Huh. So we there's a gentleman who uh, was sort of the first one to really kind of lean into this charge, Brett Tomberlin, and he had forged a relationship with the present day owners of the house. And um, he had yet to make uh, a feature film, but he sort of sought me out and uh, we partnered up and we went down this road of, of putting the film together. And you always think it's going to be easy when you first start out and then you realize it's it's just never easy. You know, you would think, oh, geez, well, how could you not make this movie? It's so obvious and it attracts however many millions of people a year to pay to tour the house. But it took a minute. It took a minute. We had it set up at uh, a large independent studio and production company called Exclusive Media Group, um, which was being run by a friend of mine. And we, we developed the film there and um, had a script. And then, and then that company, you know, spent all their money. Hmm. And, uh, and then it was just kind of a labor of love to really figure out how we could still get the movie made. And uh, as is so often the case, it's just, it's, completely antithetical to logical thinking. You know, the house is there in in San Jose, California, right? The ultimate set that we could never reproduce. Mm -hmm. So we shot it in Australia Mm -hmm. because our filmmakers were Australian, Spirit Brothers, and because we basically got, you know, 45% of what we needed to make the film through various grants and tax credits. So we did do a few days at the house in San Jose, just a very few, mostly exteriors. And yes, we were lucky to get Helen to play the film. And yeah, so about a 10-year journey, which isn't really all that long for, for putting a feature film together. No, but the reason why I really wanted to hone in on this, not just for you know Amnesia Lane, but um, really for the, the through line. I always look for through lines in creatives. And I found that, you know, with you, once you mentioned that you were hanging out at the Century 21 theaters and you'd go over to Winchester, I knew that this was obviously a through line for you, a passion project, a love letter. They always start, they don't always start out that way. The ones that you stick with, you know, for five, 10, 15 years, they definitely, you can see sort of an arc, right? And you can see a through line. And and Winchester is one of those. Wilder is certainly one of those. One of the other ones I can't talk about today is definitely one of those. That initial passion, you know, it's, it's a bit of like, it's a bit of a calling, I would say. There's certainly easier ways to make a buck. So it's not like you feel so arrogant that you're the only one to tell the story, but you have a point of view about the spirit of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And that gives you, I don't know, a little bit more drive to kind of see it through. And Mm -hmm. there's any number of times with these projects where, you know, they they just, they crater and you just think this thing's never coming back at various stages, you know, whether you've sold it and you're developing a script or whether you're on your way to production and financing falls apart or you lose a filmmaker so, yeah, I just you do feel a little bit of purpose, at least I do, for the ones that, that you see through over those, those those many years. You know, I never really thought about this, but now that you're talking, I realize that there, I'm sure there's a bit of heartbreak in that business now. Oh, man, I, 
I, I will say this, you know, when American Werewolf in London fell apart the first time, you know, in 2005, I was in a fetal position under my desk contemplating going to sell real estate with my brother in Los Gatos because I just, I just couldn't take it. And it was one of five things. And it was so essential to my, not just my financial future, but also to my profile and my canon of films that I was building. So I, I take them a little less personally now. It doesn't mean I don't care as much, but there's a larger volume of work and sort of a, you know, a bigger pipeline of the things that we're doing with Sobe. And you just know that some are going to go away. You know, it's like any, you can't get too wedded to them. I'm, again, I'm either the producer, executive producer, in some cases, a financier. I'm not the director. I'm not mm-hmm. the writer. My job is to facilitate the, facilitate those people, which usually means hiring the right ones and getting the hell out of the way. If they want my input, I'm happy to give it, but I don't, all evidence to the contrary, I don't need to hear the sound of my own voice, um, nor do I feel the need to, I have to imprint on it in any meaningful way. So, but sure, there's some that have gone that were, that were utter heartbreak, but to be, to be frank, if, if werewolf went away now, I could live with it, you know, um, mm-hmm. some of the other ones, may, maybe not as easily. Yeah. I, I, I ask those questions sometimes because it's really about, uh, letting go in a certain, or at least staying out of the results, not having no attachments. Um, yeah. And I think well, that's it's, hard, it's hard though, because you are, you know, I've, I've, and I don't say I, like I was the only one, but Andrew Trapani willed Hawkline to this threshold. Now what happens with it beyond is going to be a lot more about Yorgos and Tony and New Regency than, than me. In many ways, it's not that my job is done, but my purpose, which I also kind of had to come to peace with, right. Is, you go get one of the top filmmakers in the world, you know, I'll be getting a draft of the screenplay when it's ready, but I don't think Yorgos will hold his breath waiting for my comments. Right. And that's okay. You know, because that wasn't necessarily my role was to just basically get this thing with a crowbar, you know, out of the earth and, 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 and get it to this threshold. You're like a great bigger. So, <laughs> believe it or not. It's funny. You know, I, 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 I had, a, I had an executive come say to me that he's like, how did you find this? Where do you find these things? I'm like, I don't, I find the ones that don't fall in your lap. I like that part of the process. I like excavating great projects and intellectual property and things. Yeah. Going back to your uh, Indiana Jones. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so before we kind of close up shop here, I, of course I have to talk about the century 21 theaters, which we were talking about earlier. So ladies and gentlemen, sure enough, this giant dome theater, there was actually a few of them in this very, very small-ish town at the time, especially. And it was a classic 60s, you know, retro-modern kind of thing design. And, and and this is legendary in terms of just San Jose, but they had this really corporate kind of theme song like they used to do back in the day. And it was just dun, 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 dun. And, but the best thing about it was that in, again, San Jose only, as far as I know, at least, Everybody in the theater just knew to clap along. So it was dun, 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 clap, 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 clap. And it was about a minute. There you go. <laughs> it was about a minute long. And everybody knew it. And it was this collective thing. It was this community. And I cannot express, except Andrew will know this as well, that sense of bonding, that sense of almost being in a tribe. And everybody knew how to do it. And everybody laughed because everyone was doing it. And it was just magical time for me because it really, truly introduced me to movies. And I will say this as well. My very first date 
very first date I ever did, I took this woman, Angie Freeman, as a matter of fact, to see Raising Arizona. So that was a good intro as far as dates concerned. She didn't like it. That was the end of that date. But I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about your experiences there. I definitely recall waiting in line for uh, for Star Wars and for Raiders. And I recall seeing um, Temple of Doom with my lifelong best friend, Eric Lansness. Um, any film that meant anything between 1975 and seven. By the way, there was a Bob's Big Boy in that parking lot, which we'd always yeah. hit my brothers and my dad and the great town and country outdoor mall across the way. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. So, all that. Mm-hmm. No, those were definitely the, the titans i saw there all the titans all the big ones that you would you would imagine of course no i actually remember i saw temple of doom there too um kalima kalima <laughs> i love that movie it's such a great movie <laughs> like it was such a weird one too because like short round and um and oh god who was the woman that was uh spielberg's wife right um yeah kate capshaw kate capshaw that's right yeah that was yeah cool. is that right Well, it's interesting, you know, sometimes you see these having, you know, lived a life and, you know, been through a divorce and, um, you know, now raising a four-year-old daughter that I share custody of with, you know, you you go through these periods of life while you're working on these movies. And Spielberg was going through a pretty gnarly time in his personal life when he was making that, right? So that can't help but have an impact as, as, as professional and singular of an artist as he is, you know, when you're going through your stuff and you're making these things that, you know, some of that has to filter into the craft. Of course. It certainly does. Of course. Mm-hmm. No, he was, uh, God, I, I have so many memories of that place that you just rejiggered. Like I saw, um, was it Jaws? That I, yeah. I saw Jaws there. I think when I was a kid, like way too early in my life, but I did, Yeah, um, you know, just movie after movie. Cause it was kind of the only place, if I remember correctly, that was at least like the theater. Yeah, but there was, remember, there was a rogue one. There was a Century 25, you know, six clicks south over at Westgate Mall. That's when right. Raiders of the Lost Ark played, I'm not kidding, for like five years. It literally was just, it was, that's all they had on the billboard for like five years. Wow. Impossible to conceive of now. But no. that was literally the case. No, yeah. no whatsoever. I actually spoke to uh, the editor of like Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and Mission Impossible. He's like the guy, Paul Hirsch. And he also, but but he did do this one crazy movie with with uh, De Palma called um, Phantom of the Paradise, which I don't. Okay. It, bananas. Oh yeah, I know about Phantom. Absolutely. Yeah, bananas. And he told me actually that that played in France. It was the same thing. Like he said that played in France for like four years. Possible to conceive of now, right? No, <laughs> yeah, that would never happen. You know, I would love to do this again sometime. I mean, I God damn it, you're a great guy. I can tell already. So yeah, I I really appreciate the time. It's been fun. So hey, man, here's how I end the show. Um, we're gonna do. Uh, I always do this. We're gonna do a little bit of acting involved. I'm gonna say goodbye. You're gonna say goodbye, and then I'm gonna pretend to hang up, and I am gonna hang up, and then we're gonna keep talking just to say goodbye. Deal. <laughs> Fair enough. Here we go. Going to be a little acting involved, slate and rough. Uh, Andrew, seriously, thank you so much. I cannot believe that you and I were in the same goddamn town for such a long time. You talked about through lines, so I guess we're, there's another one, right? There you go. That's exactly right. So seriously, man, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And now your turn, act. Oh, Jeff, thanks so much. It was a pleasure being here. Good deal. Okay, I'm going to pretend to hang up, and it's very dramatic when I do it. And here we go. Click.